moment and pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have given us your word. I pray this morning that your word works on each one of us who are hearing your word, that we come to ever greater faith, ever greater devotion to Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So work on us through the power of the Holy Spirit. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine, if you will, that there's a brand new fire department. And it's brand new in this town. It's a fairly large town, but brand new. They have young men who are strong, and they go through all the exercises. They do everything, making sure that all the equipment's ready for the fires, and they go out and they do the fires, and everything works really well. But then the years go by, and the men are getting a bit older. And they are not necessarily checking their equipment as much, but they're still doing it. But then one year, something really weird happened. There weren't any fires for a year in their section of the town. Now, there were for others, but they weren't called. So there weren't any fires for a year. I mean, and as time progressed, well, they ended up eating a little bit more, gaining a little bit weight, and um, they weren't checking the equipment as much as they should have, and some of the equipment, especially with other budget cuts, had gotten a little old. But at the end of the year, there was a, actually a very large fire that took a large part of downtown. They call it a four-alarm fire, right? Or five-alarm fire. So all these trucks had to come, and this department had to get there as well. They got there last, and tragically, because they weren't ready, three of their men died in a fire. Now, if you were the fire captain and you were reviewing the situation, what were some of the thoughts that you might have? Wouldn't you be thinking something like, they should have known better. They should have been prepared. They know the risks of their profession. They should have been ready. They should have been prepared. I mean, you and I would probably have some of those same ideas, some of those same uh, questions going through our minds, some of those same thoughts, wouldn't we? But it's the same thing with us Christians, with the church at large. We know that the Lord will come again, and we need to be ready and waiting. You see, Jesus took some of his precious last hours just a few days before he was to be crucified, and he took time with just his disciples to talk about the end times, to talk about his advent. Now, the advent that he mentioned is not the first advent that we're going to start to celebrate in the coming weeks. That first advent, advent is about his birth, but the second advent is about his coming again. And so in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, it's a long section. It's a section called the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because he took just his disciples, the inner group, to the Mount of Olives, hence Olivet Discourse. So we need to heed this because Jesus took precious time 
in the precious few days before his crucifixion to talk about this. And you know what? He didn't spend time talking about the specific day and the specific hour. You know what he talked about most? He talked about waiting, watching, being ready, and being productive. One commentator summed it up like this. Live as though Jesus is coming back today. Plan as though he is not coming back for 100 years. So this morning, we're going to do waiting and ready. Next week, we're going to talk about being productive. Our roadmap for this week is we need to keep our light or keep your light lit because personal salvation cannot be shared. Therefore, enter the door before it is shut. That's our roadmap for this morning. You ready? <laughs> Waiting and ready. Are you ready? Here we go. All right, Matthew chapter 25, starting verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So Jesus' parable about the kingdom of heaven is pretty straightforward, and he uses the, the metaphor of a wedding feast. It would be helpful for us to understand, though, a little bit about uh, weddings, wedding feasts in the time of Jesus, because there were actually two parts. There was the betrothal, and then there was the wedding feast itself. Now, the betrothal was uh, much more than, than how we have it now, the engagement. You know, you go to the restaurant, you give the ring, that type of thing. It was much more formal than that. As a matter of fact, there was a ceremony with witnesses in which the man and the woman formally pledged to each other. Still wasn't a marriage, but it was very formal, and there was a pledge of faithfulness. And even though this, during this time they could not be sexually intimate with each other, if they were intimate with somebody else, it was considered adultery. I want you to book that mark, bookmark that in your mind, because when we talk about Joseph and Mary, they were betrothed, right? But now Mary was pregnant, and it's like, whoa, that's a serious thing going on there. So just bookmark that. Now, after about a year, there was the formal wedding itself. And what would happen is the groom and his companions would get specially dressed up. And they would go from his house, and a procession was made to the bride's house. And there they would get the bride and the bridesmaid. It was truly a bridal party. And they would process back to the groom's house for the ceremony. And the, fee and the ceremony wasn't just like a you know, half hour and then there's a little part. It, was, it would go on for a week. So it was a big deal. So that's the situation. Jesus is talking about that there's already been a betrothal. And then the groom is going to come for the feast, for the final ceremony. Now, it's a parable, right? And we don't want to allegorize it too much. We don't want to look for hidden meanings in every crook and nanny. But I think there are some things in this parable 
that really do apply and that we can infer some things. For example, in this parable, who do you think the groom is? Who's coming for the bride? Jesus, right? Jesus would be coming for his bride. And who's the bride? The church, right? If you take a look, Jesus is the groom. This is what scripture says. And we have that also in Revelation. The church is the bride. I would encourage you to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. And it really brings forth the idea of Christ as the, as the groom and the church as the bride. That means us, the bride of Christ. So who are the bridesmaids then? The virgins, or I'll just say bridesmaids. They would be members of the church, wouldn't it? And now remember, there was a betrothal already took place. And what was the importance of the betrothal? It was a pledge of faithfulness, wasn't it? Christ has said, I have pledged my very life to the church that I might sanctify her and make her holy. And then the church then also must give the same pledge, an undying pledge of faithfulness to Christ Jesus, the groom. So that's the setup. I mean, we wouldn't get all that just by kind of looking at the parable here, but there's a depth to it that the audience, the disciples would have understood. Now, when you take, if you've been to a wedding party and you take a look at the bridesmaids, and I don't know, what's the biggest bridesmaid number you've ever had? I think uh, the largest wedding I did, there were like eight bridesmaids or something like that. I mean, that's it's a pretty big wedding party. But if you look at a wedding party, can you tell just by looking at the people, at the, the bridesmaids, who are the wise and who are the foolish? You can't, can you? And it's the same thing in a church. You can't because Jesus is saying there's a distinction here with, even within the church. And you can't just look at the people in the church and say who are the wise and who are the foolish. The only way you can tell who are the wise and who are the foolish or by the actions they took. Here, Jesus says there were certain actions that the foolish did not do. They did not bring enough oil for their lamp. Now, most of the pictures will show this little lamp, you know, a little cup-shaped lamp. It was actually, the, the better word is more like a, a torch, you know, a, a short torch where you would put some cloths and put oil on the cloths and it would burn. But you needed extra oil then for that cloth to burn, for there to be light to be able to see your way in part of that procession. I mean, that was the practical aspect. So you had to be able to see where you were going. But is there something more to the oil and to the light? And so when we take a look at Scripture, I think there actually is something more that we can uh, identify with. And I would encourage you to read Exodus chapter 27, verse 20, 21. I'm going to read it here. So they're in the desert. It's the tent of meeting, the place where there's the holy, of holy, there's the holy place and the holy of holies. Verse 20 says, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil, that is just before the Holy of Holies, outside the Holy of Holies, 
that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons, sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations for the people of Israel. This was important. This was a command that God gave that these lamps must be lit and oil must be provided to it. So what can we surmise from that? Well, certainly in the Old Testament, the oil and light were used to signify the presence of the Lord. And I think for you and I, we can surmise that this oil, this light is the light of Christ Jesus. And it is a light that burns with spiritual life. It's not a dead torch, it's not a dead lamp, but it is a light that burns brightly with the life and light of Christ Jesus. Again, we just need to take a look at Scripture to help us understand some of these things. If you take a look at John chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus is now talking to the disciples. He's saying, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. See, each of us, when we are born again, we are given a new life and a new light in Christ Jesus. And we are not to keep that light just for ourselves, but we are to shine that light into the rest of the world to proclaim the light of Christ. What's the, what's the song, right? This little light of mine. Okay, everybody, first verse. I'm not, I, I'll try singing, but everybody sing loudly. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. That's what we have, brothers and sisters. We have the light of Christ Jesus, and we are to let that shine. And just as the people of Israel tended to the lamp, so we must also tend to our spiritual life, right? You and I need to feed that fire. Paul, Paul knew this. Paul wrote to his Timothy protege, his protege Timothy, and he told him specifically to fan into flame the gift of God. So how are we to fan into flame? How are we to keep this light burning? What's the oil? Well, we are to be devoted to a spiritual light and life of Christ. See, on an ongoing basis, we need to come together to worship, right? We need to come together to worship. We need to be together in prayer, not just individually, but together in prayer. We need to abide in his word, which means a devotional life, but also there's Bible study. So we dive deeper into his word. And I'm using and emphasizing the we aspect here because all of us need together to help each other have that flame burn brightly. 
So when there's a, a fire, right? You're around a campfire or something, and there's a lot of coals there, and you take out one coal, right? And if you set that coal aside, what happens pretty quickly? It burns out, right? It cools down. It loses the flame. It loses the fire. It needs to be with the other coals to burn brightly. I have to tell you, people say that I don't need to come together to worship anymore. I don't need to be in Bible study. I don't need to have devotions or prayer life. They're like that coal that has removed themselves from the fire. And I can tell you that that light for them burns out quickly. And it's a dangerous thing to happen. So you and I must keep our light lit. And we must keep our light lit because personal salvation cannot be shared. Let's go back to our text now, starting in verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. So regarding being asleep, uh, we don't need to allegorize this and say it's about spiritual sleep. You know what? People sometimes during their activities, they need sleep. And that's fine. Even Jesus slept, right? The point that he's making here is that the bridegroom comes when you least expect him. The bridegroom comes when you least expect him. While the text says midnight, you could read it in a more broader fashion. The, the groom came in the middle of the night, 1, 2, 3, 4 a.m., right? Just the middle of the night when you were sleeping. Go back, think about those firefighters, right? When an alarm happens, they need to get up right away and be ready right away. One uh, article I read about a fire department in a, in a city, the fire departments in the city, they said on average, from when the alarm came to when the firemen were dressed and ready to get in the fire truck was one minute and 15 seconds. Pretty fast, right? Especially if you're sound asleep to get up and be dressed in one minute and 15 seconds. And then it only took them on average four minutes and two seconds to reach their destination. So uh, just a little over five minutes from totally asleep to totally there on the job. I have to tell you, when Christ comes, you will not even get that time. You need to be ready then and there. Not days, not weeks, not years, but then and there. And there's going to be a shout. The shout will be, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. This is the announcement of Christ Jesus to all of creation. You know, when he was born on the first advent, it was very humble Advent, wasn't it? Uh, he was born in a stable, laid in a manger. And although the shepherds heard the voice of the angels singing, here now it seems that all creation will shout out. 
Revelation chapter 19, starting verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty has come. Now, in the Old Testament, God the Father is often seen as the husband to the nation of Israel. But now, the Father has sent His Son, Christ Jesus, the groom, to be for the bride of Christ. And so the text goes on, verse 7, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. The wise bridesmaid had enough oil. Their lamp was lit. They were all ready. They were prepared for the groom. Now, in your weddings or the weddings that you've been part of, isn't there always that little bit of panic that goes on right before the wedding begins? Like, are we going to get everything done on time, this and that and this? Now, can you imagine one bridesmaid not having the dress at all. Has that ever happened, by the way? It's just possibility here. But one bridesmaid not having a dress at all and turning to another bridesmaid and saying, let me wear yours. Ladies, what would you say? No, <laughs> you're crazy. This is mine and it's fit just for me. You got to get your own. Well, in the same manner, same situation, when it comes to our salvation, we are saved by Christ alone. We are given robes of righteousness, fine linen, pure and bright, made pure by the blood of the Lamb. And they are for us individually. The clothes that you receive, the righteousness that you receive, cannot be shared with somebody else. You cannot borrow someone else's salvation, and personal salvation cannot be shared. Now, the message of salvation can and should be shared, but your personal salvation can't be shared. You can't somehow get into the marriage feast riding on the coattails of another, saying, well, my family's saved, so that's good enough. I can just ride on in. Or you cannot get in to the marriage feast by saying, my name is on the roster of that church. My family has been on that church roster forever, so I'm good to go. That does not cut it. Even the prayers of someone else will not save you. Now, should we pray for others? Well, you bet. Should we pray for their salvation? You bet. But ultimately, the salvation comes because of faith in Christ Jesus and Him alone. That's the only way. So there's an urgency, isn't there? There's an urgency of being ready for His coming, but also an urgency to make sure that the whole bridal party is included in the marriage feast. Because there is going to become a time when it's too late and the door is shut. So we need to enter the door before it's shut, starting in verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, 
and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now, in a lot of movies that you watch, especially like Hallmark movies about weddings, you know, they always set up the dramatic effect near the end that the bride or the groom somehow is delayed. You, you, right? You've seen this? They're delayed somehow. They're, for whatever circumstance, they, they can't get to the wedding on time or so it seems. And so they have to hitch a ride on a plane, a train, a bus, a car, whatever. And then, so you see them in the movie, they get on there and they're panicked and they're frightened and they're, they're like, oh, what's going to happen? And then you cut away to the church and it's always the pastor looking at his watch and the organist had played the bridal march the fifth time and now the organist looks at the pastor like, really? And the pastor's just about ready to say, maybe we should. And at that moment, in bursts the bride or the groom and all is saved and it's a happy ending, isn't it? Did I get that about right? Yeah, and that's what a Hallmark movie is like. And we, as a culture, always expect a happy ending with any wedding. But Jesus gives a very different and a very sobering ending to this. The ones who were sensible went into the feast, into the marriage feast. But the ones who were foolish, the door was shut, and they could not get in. Now, you and I need to ask a different question now. What is the door? But who is the door? And again, we just need to look to Scripture for this. John chapter 10, verse 7 and then 9. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So Jesus, who is the door, holds open the way for those whom he knows, and no one can shut that door for those whom he knows and those who know him. But he will shut the door for those he does not know. And no matter how much you plead and you bang on that door, it's shut forever. There's not a second chance that they get. No matter how much they plead. It's verse 11 says, And afterwards the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. These are chilling words. But these are words that he has already said in different parable. Uh, not a different parable, but just talking about the end times. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, it's not the outer form 
that Jesus desires of his disciples. He desires all of us, his disciples, to know him as Lord and Savior. Not just an intellectual assent, but to actually know him as Lord and Savior, to give your very heart, your very soul, your very mind, all your very strength, all to him, to be devoted to him above all things and to not let that love grow cold. So he ends this parable with these words now to his disciples. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, I would imagine that some people might be thinking today, man, why are we doing such a heavy-duty message today? I mean, in the circumstances of our life right now, with all the tumult and everything going on, couldn't we just preach a message that would be uplifting, happy, inspiring, you know, things like that? Well, first of all, all Scripture is inspired by God. So we can learn from all Scripture. But specifically, Jesus took time just days before he was being crucified and spent a lot of time with his disciples. Not just the general population, right? But these are the followers of Christ. These are ones who said, I will follow you to the death. And he's telling them to watch out, to be alert, to be ready. So you and I should really take heed to that particular message. See, I don't know about you, but I, along with other pastors I know, are seeing a great separation right now before our very eyes. Before our very eyes, there's a great separation of those who are actually disciples and followers of Christ Jesus and cultural Christians. People who are Christian in name only. And if you look, you can see the signs as well. So as a shepherd of the flock, who cares for the flock, and also as a watchman on the wall, I want to make sure that everybody knows this message and all come in to the marriage feast. And not a single one would have to say, Lord, Lord, let me in. So we need to heed the message and take it seriously and apply it as well. You know, at each end of a message, I normally have a what about you section. I've renamed that now. I've renamed it because I think uh, we need to up it a little bit. It is about hear the word, apply the word, grow in Christ. You've heard the word, right? We've explained the word here. And now it's time to apply the word, to make it living in your life. So three questions to help you apply the word. How are you keeping your light lit? You know, we talked about that. There are ways to keep your light lit. Are you counting on the outer form of religion for your salvation? And are you waiting and ready to enter the marriage feast at the moment's notice? Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your message, which brings to our attention the urgency, but also the love that you have for us, the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus. 
Help us to have a spirit-filled life, praising Jesus, being devoted to him day in and day out. And in his name we pray, amen.